The Way Out Podcast, episode 269. What is your name? Randy Anderson. Randy Anderson, what was your substance of choice or DOC? Cocaine. Any, any, any form of it, except for I didn't use a syringe, but any form, any other form. <laughs> what is your clean or sober date? Recovery date is January, 9, January 10, 2005. So January 9th was the last day I used substances. Congratulations on a considerable stretch of sobriety. <laughs> That's a big deal. Yeah, yep, 16 years abstinence-based recovery, not a... I even quit cigarettes eight years ago, so which was hard, which was harder than cocaine. <laughs> Randy, I can relate with that on an intimate level. Quitting nicotine was the hardest addiction I ever had to quit. Thousand percent. I don't know. Caffeine probably pretty rough. I still, I still drink. I get, I still have plenty of caffeine intake. And I know when I don't have caffeine, I get pretty miserable headaches. So <laughs> I imagine caffeine would be a difficult one for me to give up to, but, but cigarettes were a mother. We might have to change our third intro question to recovery date. We're going to put that in the old way out podcast mixer and see what comes out. But I like recovery date. So we may change that in honor of Randy Anderson. Oh. And it's really, I think it's up to the person. Do they call it a sobriety day? Do they call it a clean day? Do they call it a recovery day? What, how does the individual identify themselves? And for me, I identify as a recovery day, so. I love it. What is your primary recovery program or pathway? So mine, so, interest, so treatment was where I initiated recovery. Thank God I got, uh, I got allowed to go to treatment when I was, after I got arrested, but I, I think my, when I think of pathway for me, it was, it was really having a really good counselor and treatment that I could relate to. Had a story very similar to mine. <laughs> Wait, actually his was, when I, once I heard his, I thought I, I felt like a boy scout after hearing his story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wow, I had done nothing bad in my life. I mean, I'd done a lot of bad things, but after hearing this guy's story, I thought that's nothing, right? And then I really though, for me, if I, I, if I say, if it wasn't for the access to family therapy when I was in treatment, like someone to talk about my family origin of issues and and get to the root cause of my addiction, which who knows what it was, but we were lucky to find it in in family therapy. It was the relationship I had growing up with my father. Uh, that that family therapy though saved my life. Like realizing that I no longer needed to keep. I only needed to keep my side of the street clean. I didn't need to live up to his expectations. What were my expectations? What what did I want for myself? Like so, family and when I so family therapy saved my life. But when I talk about my recovery too, I always say, like, I truly believe I've resolved my substance use disorder. Like I resolved the medical condition I have, but I live with inside of me. I still have a disease that if I don't if I don't take care of somehow, it'll come back. And so that's kind of how I look at my particular recovery and 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 disorder and disease. But yeah, very similar to my experience, Randy, that I had to treat my trauma and family of origin and mental health and my substance use in parallel. I had to treat those in parallel. And then when I did, that's when the real transformation came about. 
trying to treat one but not the other didn't work for me. I had to treat them in conjunction with each other. And when I moved through that trauma in a meaningful way in therapy, and I used EMDR, and that was transformational for me. That allowed me to truly recover in a way that I hadn't been able to before. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, it, again, the family therapy was smart. Mine was a lot more, more really just CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Just retraining my behaviors, right? Because you're, if you're retra- retraining your brain, which then your behaviors change, right? And so for me, it was just retraining my thought patterns, right? That, that, you know, I was good enough. And I mean, I grew up with a father that always said to me, uh, uh, loser is second place is for losers. Uh, you're not, you don't, you know, whatever, all those things, you know, no, men don't cry. And, and, you know, I've gotten thrown through sheetrock walls before and beat with baseball bats and hammers and like all, when I found it was early alcohol, it started my journey when I found alcohol and it numbed that for the first time. Uh, I think that's when it flipped the switch in my brain. And I knew that I didn't know what substance yet, but I just knew that that numbing effect uh, was was very good uh, medication for me <laughs> to 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 numb the pain that I received physically, verbally, and emotionally from my father. Right. So indeed, yeah, yeah. Making sure that we address all of what is ailing us from a mental health perspective, from a trauma perspective, from a substance use perspective is critical. We can't just treat part of ourselves. We have to treat all of ourselves. Now, Randy, this next question, we do not have four hours for this podcast. So, (laughs) so we're going to need the Reader's Digest. How do you serve the recovery community? Yeah, so I think my, the best the best way I can serve the community is one I'm I'm a I really feel myself as big like what do I do the best at is I'm a connector, like I might not I might not know the exact resource, but I bet I know the person that does, mm. <laughs> and I think so I think how I serve best my recovery community is I connect the dots for people. Like I think that's one of my strengths, really big strengths, is that I'm a networker. Like right, I I don't know all the resources available, but I can find you. I know someone that might know, and so I think that's one of my strengths. And the other one is I'm not I'm a real people person. I'm a huge extrovert, and like I'm not afraid, as you know, like to show up at a at a hearing in in D.C. and uh, and disrupt a congressional hearing when necessary, or or grab a megaphone and protest in front of the White House when necessary, or or whatever it takes. Sometimes, right? I think I think that being an extrovert and not being afraid to be outspoken uh, is probably one of my biggest strengths. And it, it hasn't made me it's it's made me some enemies over the years, right? It's funny. Just a quick story, Charles. I was at a March conference this week, and on Monday, a person pulled me aside. I had applied to be on their board of directors. And he said to me, he goes, Randy, I don't know if you know, but there's a few people at DHS that don't really think too highly of you. And I went like, really? <laughs> Shocking. And I said, I bet I can tell you who their names are even. And he looked at me and just laughed. He's like, I said, I said, I understand. I said, I, you know, I do some things that doesn't like that ruffles some feathers once in a while. Right. And, and I get that. And I just said, you need to do what's best for your organization. I mean, as if me being on your board jeopardizes your relationship with that government agency that you need don't i don't want to be on your board like I, and i'm okay with that you don't you're not going to hurt my feelings but anyways just that's i think being that that i, can, I know when to be an, 
an advocate? And when do I need to be an activist? When do I need to be a disruptor? When do I need like always, you know, I think, but I think I am, I think those are my strengths. Like I'm just not afraid. I'm very bold. My, well, name of my company, Bold North Recovery. I mean, I think it suits that. It's just not the state we live in. It's kind of my personality too. Indeed, so. indeed. And <laughs> we're gonna talk a lot more about advocacy, what it is, why it's important, how other people can help, like the Way Out podcast listeners. So that'll be a lot of fun. Last but not least, what does recovery mean to you, Randy? Well, it's simple. Uh, it's really simple, short, really, really reader, reader side just version or Cliff's Notes. I like to say I'm a little older, so I remember when we used to use Cliff's Notes and <laughs> like the, uh, the Cliff's Note version is it means I got my life back. Like, I mean, I got mm-hmm. I got my life back. And, mm-hmm. and like some people even ask me like what one word and I use the word freedom. Uh, but it's not just it's freedom from prison, freedom from from worry, freedom from being broke freedom from <laughs> like freedom from all the negative stuff right just freedom yeah i think that's for me is the simplest way i just got i got my life back i got and i really found out who randy truly is my favorite it reminds me of uh so there's a mark twain quote which i love and it's on every like invoice and proposal i put out for my company but it says the two most important days of your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why uh and that's my favorite quote of all time and if you funny I heard that on the movie The Equalizer with Denzel Washington, and I fell in love with it ever since, but yes. <laughs> I also love that quote because it reminds us how important purpose is. Yeah. And how many of us lose that purpose when we're in the throes of our addictions. Yeah. And recovery makes it possible for us to discover our purpose and a one thousand <laughs> percent yeah and 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 you know and sometimes that purpose it changes for some people i mean i know my journey over 16 years is changed but i think i finally landed you know, i'm 51 now and i landed in a place where i really feel yesterday i had lunch with a, a, a scott county treatment court judge and he wanted to talk about how do he implement peer services in his courtroom and i thought 10 years ago, 11 years ago, I was incarcerated and I'm having lunch with a judge. <laughs> Talking about how to implement yeah. recovery support in this courtroom. Right. That right. is the manifestation of purpose. Yeah. Welcome Way Out faithful and first timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast partners with All Recovery Rings and allrecoveryrings.com, where you'll find stunning recovery rings made from your very own recovery coin. That's allrecoveryrings.com. The Way Out Podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group 
that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Finally, a word of caution. This podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Whale Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this edition of The Way Out, we have an incredibly illuminating and enlightening interview with a truly special guest in Randy Anderson, who is a person in long-term recovery, recovery advocate extraordinaire, and an overall tremendous human who dedicates himself to improving access, availability, and equity in recovery services both locally in Minnesota and nationally through training individuals in and advocating for critical recovery services like peer recovery support services. Randy's journey to and through recovery to this point is without question chocked full of adversity, both in childhood as well as in active substance use, complete with a prison stint and a meaningful recovery that provided the foundation for Randy to be the incredible recovery advocate he is today. Randy shares with us a wealth of recovery wisdom and insight into how recovery advocacy works and more importantly, why it matters. So listen up. Randy Anderson, thank you so much for taking time out of your extraordinarily busy schedule, and I don't say that lightly, to join us here on the Way Out podcast. You're a person in long-term recovery. You're a recovery advocate extraordinaire, and you are so many other things in the recovery community. Before we start digging into your recovery journey and talking about advocacy, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience. Tell us a little bit about yourself and we'll get started. Perfect. Thank you, Charles, for having me on the show. And hello to all you out there listening. It's really a pleasure to uh, to share part of my journey with you. My name is Randy Anderson. I'm a person living in long-term recovery. And what that means to me is I haven't used any alcohol or drugs or mood-altering substance since January 9th, 2005. So if all goes as planned, uh, this coming January, I'll celebrate 17 years. Uh, and I still, even, you know, it's funny, I say that and I say it a lot because that's how I introduce myself very often. I'm still, I'm still a little shocked 
like how on God's earth did I get there? Like, like 17 years coming up. I'm like, holy Jesus, that's a long time. I just never thought, you know, I mean, honestly, I'd never be one of those people, right? Put the air quotes up, one of those people. But really, when I think about, you know, because if I don't put my recovery first, everything else comes last. And because of my recovery, I'm able to have healthy relationships. I own a home. I vote. I, I have a job and a, run a business that I love. I, I'm a responsible pet owner. I pay taxes. I do all those things that normal people do, right? <laughs> so it's just amazing, right? So that's me. One of the things that I learned very early on coming in this time into recovery, now six plus years in, and you are now 16 plus years in, is that if I don't make my recovery the priority, I will chase everything else out that I care about. And it's not that I don't care about them. I do. But I will chase it out. I will chase out people that are close to me, my loved ones. I will chase out jobs. I will chase everything out. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I just, and not to go on too long a story here, but in treatment, when I was there, they make you write a, a goodbye letter to your drug of choice, right? Mm-hmm. With the treatment I went to. And, and when I, I, mean, I probably still could find the letter. I have a bunch of my stuff from treatment. When I think about that goodbye letter, just you saying that, it's like, it was a real, it was my most intimate, my, the drug cocaine was my most intimate relationship I'd had in my life. And when I put, when I, that relationship took everything else from me, everything, including nearly my life, but, but freedom and, and money and, and family and you name it, it took it away. And so, yeah, it's, it's, when you think about it like that, it's a, yeah, it's everything else. If, if I choose cocaine, everything else goes away. It's interesting you say that because I, I often refer to alcohol as my first love. Right. Exactly. No, I get it. I, yeah. I actually understand that statement. Right. Yeah. One hundred percent. Like when I met, I mean, I tried during, you know, I didn't meet cocaine until I was in early, like 20 years old. I say it like I meeting a person. Right. Because that's what it feels like. Right. Absolutely. But I, mean, I, 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 I drank a little bit here and there. I smoked some weed here and there. But once I met cocaine, that changed my life. That was my that was it for me. Like, that's it. that was it. Nothing Absolutely. Else I didn't feel like yeah. I needed anything else. Like no, who needs right. anything else? Right. Once I found this, this is, this is all I'll ever need. 100%. Tell us Randy a little bit about what it was like for you growing up and we'll get to know you a little better. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I always like to, I, I always like to talk about at least the first time I remember really getting screwed up. I'm going to try to keep it PG 13. I don't know your audience. So I'll try to do my best. Uh, <laughs> we have a disclaimer on the front end. So <laughs> you have some opportunity <laughs> to get as graphic or non-graphic as you want. Okay, good. I'll still try to do my best to be Indeed. respectful. Uh, so I mean, I was 14 and my parents took me to a graduation party uh, from a family friend that we, you know, we knew I grew up knowing my entire life. And that was the first time that I ever got drunk. I, I, my parents laughed and said, just, you know, I wasn't, I was only like a couple miles from my house. You can walk home when you're done, just have fun and see you later. Right. And I remember going into that house and, and they were playing, they were all sitting at a table and they were playing a game called quarters. I think we're all familiar <laughs> with quarters, right? We are so at least, at least uh, less than a little bit older. Maybe they, I'm sure they still play the game. I would imagine it may have uh, gotten supplanted by beer pong, but 
<laughs> oh, right. I say, I didn't, we didn't have that when I was, that was right. the game, right? So anyways, and I'm like, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, we're playing this game. And I'm like, and I sit down, these all these 18, 19, 20 year old, you know, people. And like, sure, why not? I'll do this. And they were drinking, uh, here, I'm going to date myself really here, but Bartles and James original wine cooler in the green bottles, like the glass bottles, which I don't even know if they make those anymore. (laughs) Anyways, and it was, you know, I'm just going to tell you like, and just saying that I can taste it right now. because I remember how good that tasted. Like that was a, I mean, it was delicious. Right. And anyway, so I started playing this game and it was pretty good at it, but no matter how good you are, quarters whole purpose is to drink a lot of liquor, right. A lot of whatever you're drinking, so I just, all I remember is getting up to go to the bathroom. And that was the last thing I remembered that evening. Uh, I blacked out drunk. I left, I walked out of the house apparently. And I started going down the street uh, to go home, I thought, but I went the wrong direction down the main road there. So I was going away from my house. And uh, the, the police officer, Denny Smith, which was at that time, we had, we had our, we didn't have SO, uh, SRO officers, whatever they're called. We had, we had, we had liaison officers. Like, so Denny Smith, was the Golden Valley Police Liaison Officer. Sort of the community was, service yeah. officer. Correct. Today. Right, yeah. They weren't in the schools really, but they 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 would cycle through the school. They got, you know, like, but my, you know, my family was well known. We, I mean, we were, because we were, not because of bad things, but, but anyways, my dad was just, <laughs> my, not yet, not, not yet at least, but my dad was well known in the community. He'd been there for a long time anyways, but Denny Smith picked me up and he brought me home. And again, I don't know any of this. I'm just, I got told this the next day. The next morning though, I woke up and of course I was, I felt sick and hungover and, you know, horrible. But I remember my mom saying to me, Randy, you're really lucky that you were drunk last night. And I'm like, I was like, what, why? You know, well, your dad was going to beat your ass. Like when I, my dad was, you know, I got spanked with belts and hit with baseball bats and various, whatever, whatever he could find to hit me with, he'd hit me with. Right. And I, and you know what, and I don't think I consciously thought this, but I think through therapy, I learned this, that that was like the light switch moment. Like, Mm. Oh, so this is how the pain goes away. Mm. This is how I make the pain stop. Right. Mm. I just Mm. get, I just get fucked up and excuse Mm. my French, but, and I don't have to get abused anymore. Right. Mm. And so I think for me that, and I was adopted at birth. So I was three months old. So I don't know. I didn't know my birth family at that point yet. I met them later in life, but my entire birth family struggles with substances of one mm-hmm. kind or another. So by biologically or genetically, I was very predisposed to substance use problems uh, where my adopted family wasn't really much alcohol or drug problems in that family. So not a really, I didn't, I didn't see it growing up. I mean, they drank yeah. on new year's and Christmas and however, but once I, got a taste for it. That's, I think the, you know, those of us that, that 10 or 11% of us that have that addiction gene, if you want to call it like that's, I activated that gene that day. And, and then it just started me down that path. And I mean, I, I, I drank a few more times. I think I did get maybe blackout drunk one more time after that. Uh, but then of course I, I sort of hang around the wrong crowds at school, the the dirt balls, you know, I was a jock before that. I was the track star. And Randy, I can so relate to that. You know, our first <laughs> drunks are actually very, very similar because I was two 13 years old, went yeah. to a friend's house. His parents were out of town. They had a fully stocked bar. And I'm going to date myself as well because they had a giant cooler full of Zima. Zima, yeah. Oh, my God, yes. Which is Zima, just alcoholic Sprite. <laughs> Randy, do they make Zima still? Is that even they do thing? not? I and, for good, no, just... and for good reason. <laughs> hmm? 
and yeah. I got so obliterated yeah. that they put me in a dog kennel yeah. because I was completely out of control. And they went to check on me sometime later, and I'm blacked out. Yeah. I don't remember this. Yeah. My lips are blue and I'm not breathing. Wow. And my best friend somehow was able to revive me. And they gave me a bottle of syrup of Ipecac. Wow. And I proceeded to vomit in that dude's garage for hours on end. And all I wanted to do was do it again. Because it made it all go away for the first time in my life. My mom had died when I was 11. I believe in my very most inner core that I was born with big addict and alcoholic switches. And they were bound to get tripped. But my mom dying at 11 set the stage to really activate those switches in a spectacular way. Right. That night, and they got activated. And all I wanted to do was do it again and again because it made all the pain go away. It made all the anxiety go away. I could hit on the girls. I could, right, right. 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 I could stick up to the guys. And, yep. and I fucking died and came back to life again. I mean, you might be the high school quarterback, but dude, like, like I'm a party legend. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I, so I got again, and I I was I wasn't a high school star quarterback. I was a more of a track guy. I'm an I was better off an individual sport player because I have a little thing. I had a little temper back when I was younger. <laughs> maybe something to do with the being beat by my father all the time. Right. I don't maybe. So I like I tried hockey, and I spent more time in the penalty box. The hockey coach said maybe this isn't a sport for you. I tried football and I, my problem with football was I was really fast. I could catch a ball. I was, I was a wide receiver, but I weighed a buck 40 and I was five, you know, whatever, five, eight, five, nine and, and junior high when I was trying to, when I tried it and I was tiny and right. I got, and it hurt to get hit. Like, I mean, literally a lot. Right. Hurt a lot. So right. I thought, I thought this doesn't really feel like the right sport for me either, even though I thought it was cool. So I did track, like, I competed individually and I did well. Like, you know, I was a pole vaulter, a, a, a high jumper, a hurdler, a sprinter, you know, I did, I did pretty well. And as an, in, but that was my, like, I, but anyways, when I said I was a jock, like, yeah, at individual sports, I wasn't very much a good team player. Back then. <laughs> <laughs> so you, so after this spectacular drunk that you have, and you have this association that you have now identified in hindsight, what happens? Yeah. So, I mean, I just started and that's when like the, my, you know, life turned, I mean, really, and I turned 15, no, I was, yeah, I was 14. You know, I, I, I didn't drink a whole, I mean, every occasion I would, but I just kept thinking I wanted to do it again. Mm -hmm. Like, even though you're right, like I was like, I don't remember, but I just thought, well, this is, I don't know. I just kept, but it really, so 15 and then into 16, I get into high school. It's not that easy I, when you're underage to get it either. Let's no, be back then it was. And I don't right. know, they, they tell us today, it's easy. I don't know if it's any easier or not. But, uh, and my parents didn't keep a lot in the house and nothing I liked. Like right. my dad had like whiskey in the house. <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm not, I didn't like the smell or the taste of whiskey. I mean, I mean, call me a, I like 
girly drinks, if that's what you want to call <laughs> me, right? You know, I like something sweet tasting, not not like I didn't even like beer really. I mean, I, uh, I had a quite I had to acquire a taste for beer. Now, you know, I'm not. I was laugh now. I will say my wife and I go to dinner and. I go into, you know, every oh, there's all these microbrewery places, right? And I walk into one of those places and I get, you go, like, wow, that smells delicious. <laughs> like, but I know I can't have any of that because I don't, I don't know what, I'm not willing to risk what it might do to me. So, right. So, but I, after that, I just, and I think I, I didn't, I drank a little bit for next year or so, not really, but then when I got in high school, that, then it really changed. Cause then I met, then I like at Armstrong in high school. I met the, I started to hang around the dirt balls. I got a car, had a 1970 Cougar convertible, my first car I ever bought. And that was like the instant popularity ticket. Like I got a front row parking spot, like where all the, where all the muscle cars parked. And I got, here I am just turning, just turned 16. I'm a really popular kid. Uh, not with the, not with the jocks anymore though, with the dirt balls now. Uh, that's what we called them in, in, when I was in school. And so I hang out in the smoking pit. I started smoking, you know, smoking cigarettes and, then I started smoking weed and I ran, well, started to run away from my parents' house off and on a bunch of times. And my fucking dad, God, he always found me. I don't know how, <laughs> I don't know how, I don't know how he did it. Like he's like a detective, like Magnum PI. Like, he, he always found me and brought me back. And finally I came to a point though, late in my uh, 16, where I said, I'm just, I moved out. I took all my shit, packed it up. And I, I got him. I told my parents, I found out about that as a, you can get emancipated, which I didn't know what that was. Then I found out like, well, your parents can sign a piece of paper saying they're no longer responsible for you, even at age 16. Right. So I finally, after a year of fighting and running and bring whatever, I finally convinced them to sign the paper to, to let me become emancipated. So they no longer had to claim responsibility for me. Then I moved into a house in Hopkins and just started partying. I worked at, I worked a part-time job at the Hopkins car wash we lived on ramen noodles and Hauenstein beer because it was, you know, it was super cheap. And I did that for many years and smoked, started smoking a lot of weed. And uh, interestingly enough, my relationship with my father started to improve slightly mm. when we, when we were no longer around living together. Right. Yeah, right. And so I started to, probably when I was about 18 or 19, I started to drift back into their life and, and just to see them and, go have dinner with them or something. And one day we're having dinner at Godfather's pizza in hop and golden Valley. It's now new bohemian something. I'm so sad. The Godfather's is gone. That was my favorite place of all time. <laughs> that was the first place I ate when I got out of prison. And so anyway, it's just, I had to have Godfather's pizza. It's another story for another day. But anyways, uh, I, uh, I'm having dinner at Godfather's Pizza with my parents and on there, they have one, you know, the places still having the clipboard or the bulletin board with all the different announcements and weird stuff for sale. And anyways, there was business cards and yeah, yeah, whatever. Right. That stuff. Right. And there was a thing that had a condo, condo and Hopkins for sale must sell. And it was like $20,000. And my dad's like, well, here you go, kid, you can go buy your own place. I'm like, I don't have, I can't afford, I don't have any money because I'll help you. I'll give you the down payment. A cosign for you. you. Just renting is useless. It's it's a waste of money. You're throwing your money away. So all of a sudden, uh, I don't know. Six months later, I own a condo in Hopkins. <laughs> but that, my friend, was the. Uh, now I had a place where that I owned that I could be the host of all the parties, and so that became like the party central. I started actually working a really good job though. I was started working for my dad's company, ironically enough, his mm-hmm. electrical company, as a, and I making good money. You know. 
still, though, suffering some consequence of being the, the boss's son, not the boss's employee, but the boss's son, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. Like, treated a lot differently than the other employees. But it was it was the money was OK. And so I just said, I'll do it, you know. But anyways, that's when I it was a two bedroom condo and I would get roommates. I would just put ads in the newspaper and get roommates to rent. And really, it paid most of my mortgage. Like I get a roommate for 500 bucks and they, that, my mortgage payment was like 700. So it was, you know, I, and, and it was a really low association. Pretty sweet to, setup. Yeah, it was great. But I met this guy from Florida named Bobby Khan. I'll never forget. He was from originally from Pakistan. His family is in, lived in Florida. He was going, he just finished going to the University of Wisconsin. Stout. When in doubt, go to Stout. Uh, <laughs> just, just finished that. You that beat college. me to it. I know. I love that place. I'm telling you. I enrolled there for a semester and never went to a class. But <laughs> but he, that was the first time I ever, so I, one day we're having a party and I walk into my bedroom and there's him and two of his friends and they're chopping up a white powder on the counter on my dresser. And I'm like, what do you got? What are you guys doing? You know, like, we're doing some blow, man. You want something like, and I, I, I mean, I'd seen it on television, you know, right? Sure. But I, but I'd never like been in, in front of it, like just in the same room anyways. And I, of course, me being the not, not wanting to look dumb or not cool ever, like, yeah, I'll do it. So I grabbed the, the bill and rolled the bill and snort a big line. And, you know, this is the, I, I remember this like yesterday too, because that was, I was done like that. I knew that that moment that I didn't want to do any other drug in my life except for cocaine. You know, it's interesting, Randy, because yeah. I also hung out with I don't know that we called them the dirt balls by the time I was in high school. I think yeah. we just called them the stoners. Yeah. OK. Yeah. But after that epic party, I wanted to party all the time and absolutely hung out with the stoner so i very much relate to that but cocaine for me is an interesting story because my younger brother he's 18 months younger than me and he could have cared less what i did we kind of hung out in similar circles because we were so close in age and he comes home one day and i'm like making a sandwich and he has this crazy look in his eyes and he's like char don't you ever, and I mean ever, 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 ever do cocaine. Wow. And I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> right, where did this come from, right? <laughs> Why? And he said, because it makes you feel like God <laughs> for five minutes, and then all you want to do is do it again. And he walked out of the room and he, and, and he scared me so much, Randy. Like I wanted nothing to do with it. Like, like he, <laughs> he straight does work. Scared me straight. Right. And I tried everything, literally everything else, Randy, besides that, like every, everything else, multiple, multiple he's not times. Lying. Like cocaine. That's, I mean, I can, that's, he's not that far off. I got, I never, I, I used to use the word Superman, right. uh, not God, but I'm kind of a, I like comics and Marvel now. Right. Anyways, right. Kind of probably the reason why I say Superman. Uh, <laughs> but, and, and is that DC comics? I always get those confused anyways, but another story, Jesse would hate me for not remembering that. <laughs> but anyway, because <laughs> he loves comics, but I always tell people that like uh, cocaine, like I'm Superman. I can do anything. I can, I, I can talk to any girl. I can I can sing karaoke better than anyone. I can I'm the best lover. I'm the best dancer. 
just ask me when I'm on cocaine. I'm right. telling you. <laughs> That's it, right? Yeah. But what happens after that? Are you off to the races? Yeah, so that started it. I mean, it was, uh, I just had to have more of it. And it, it escalated pretty quickly. I mean, I know when I say quickly, I don't know. I was doing it, I started doing it at least after that time. I bet I was doing it on the every on the weekends for quite for several years probably just but every weekend not just like some weekends like every weekend and then eventually i ended up meeting a, a woman uh, a waitress at a at the classic motor company it's a bar that's no longer there it's where like bubbly pauses in in st louis park mm. there used to be a big bar there and uh the owner was a friend of a friend anyways but i met a i met one of the waitresses there one night this was in my late 20s uh, very hot chick, you know, just like, and I was determined to make her mine, which I did. Ended up, uh, finally we married and it was the worst three, worst three years of my life. Probably, <laughs> except for, except for she had two young kids that were amazing, but, and I feel bad for how they had to be drugged through our shit, but, uh, she was a raging alcoholic and I was a raging coke addict at that time. I mean, I use, I don't even like using the word addict, but that's really who, I mean, I was, I was bad and there's no, no other way to put it. And that, so our, that marriage ended very, you know, three, three years, very violently and abruptly. And, and, uh, but it also sent me on a tailspin, uh, because I really, I, I, uh, I didn't, it's not that I didn't love the woman. I think I did in some way, but I really loved those kids. And when she took those kids away from me, I felt like my, I felt crushed. Like that was the end of my life. Mm -hmm. And I just started to use so much cocaine. that mm -hmm. I was actually, I honestly, I think back to it now, I think I was trying to kill myself. Just, I just thought I'd do it with cocaine. Mm -hmm. And I, in a, in a, within a short period of time, a week or two, I think I spent about $6,000 on Coke and, and, and called in sick to work for a couple of weeks. And just, that was it. I sat home. I did Coke all day long. You've got all these overwhelming feelings Loss is so difficult to deal with when we don't have the tools to be able to yeah. move through those really powerful emotions. And all of this now free time where yeah. you're not spending time with wife and kids. It's it, it's a terrible combination for someone that has a substance abuse problem. Yeah. Substance use problem. Yes. Sorry. I'm a little word police once in a while. If you, you know what, though? I appreciate <laughs> it. I do. Uh, but so, uh, and it, funny part of that story, I'm just quickly, she, when the day I came home from work, she cleaned the apartment out. She took everything. I mean, like dishes, you know, everything except for she left me the glass, the dining room table, which was a glass table that I hated with a passion. <laughs> uh, and she knew I hated that table. She, it was, I just, I hated that table. She took everything except for that table. Yeah. It was a physical manifestation of a fuck you. Yes. <laughs> no, no doubt about it. No question. It was like, I'm leaving you the one thing you hated the most was that fucking table. But everything else she took. So everything you I, loved, she took. Yep. She left the one thing you hated. Hated. Oh, God, that fucking table. Sorry. What happens me. next? So anyway, so I, well, I kind of started, you know, well, I had a friend who I her name's Heidi and she decided to come over and check on me because I hadn't heard me for a couple weeks. And she made me like get out of the house. She made me take a shower. She took me to lunch that day. And, and then I kind of like started to get back into my life. I thought like we're going, I started going back to work and, but now at this point though, the problem was I was using cocaine every day. 
Uh, it wasn't just the weekends anymore. Now it's daily, and I couldn't live without it every day. I mean, that's you've become dependent on. Oh it. yeah, one hundred percent. My physically, emo- mentally, emotionally dependent on cocaine. And then, of course, I started bringing it to work, and I worked in construction, so I did architectural sheet metal. So there, oftentimes, I'd be thirty feet in the air on a twelve-inch plank, and here I am, high as a fucking kite, like all strung out in cocaine. And I fell a couple times. I never like. I never broke anything, never got hurt, but boy, I mean, I should have, like, whoever was looking out for me, mm. uh, tell you what, like, there's times I fell off a roof once, uh, I fell off a scaffolding once, and all because I was just so coked up, I mm. you know, just, you know, anyways, but then I just started, and then I, then I, you know, then my use got so bad, I finally ended up quitting that, I, I just kind of walked off that job, uh, I just stopped going, uh, then I, then I, I was also running a little on my own construction gutter company at the time. And I had a lot, I had a pretty good money, but the more money that made, I made, the more money I spent on cocaine. And eventually I don't care how rich you are. When you start doing that drug, uh, if you don't have a, a really good source of income, you start to lose everything. And I was starting to sell off my tools and, and, and put, get loans on my vehicles and second mortgage, my condo. And anyway, started really cashing out my 401k really any way I could get money. And then one day my friend says to me, Greg says, the guy I was getting my drugs from says, they're going to, they're going to kill me, Randy. I'm like, who's going to kill you? He goes, the guys I get our drug, the drugs from there, I owe them $15,000. And if I don't pay them by Friday, they literally said they're going to kill me. I'm like, I, I'm like, okay, let's like, calm down. Calm down. Right. right. No let's one's going to be so you. dramatic. Right. And I said, can I, can I, can I talk to these people? And he's like, well, I, I suppose. I'm what? So... Is it, what? Wait, wait. What? <laughs> yeah, so I, want, I wanted to talk to him. I wanted to figure out how we could, you know, solve this problem for my friends. So we, well, I, so I'm not going to lie, Charles. My, I mean, I was worried about my friend, but I was more worried about, like, I didn't want something. My That was my drug. That was supply. your source. <laughs> right. So I needed to make sure I, sec- like, secured that and kept it good because I didn't want to, you know, I needed that. Right. And you clearly were very confident about your negotiation skills, Randy, that you're going to like <laughs> negotiate with drug kingpins. This will be interesting. What happens next? I met with a guy and his girlfriend uh, at the target parking lot in, in Hopkins, Minnesota, by the way, I remember it. And Juan, his name was Juan. I don't think that was his real name, but that's what I was told to call him. <laughs> no. <laughs> and his girlfriend was a white girl that, spoke perfect English. Juan did not speak any English. Mm-hmm. So I, she translated. So we're all in a, his pickup and we're talking. Went up, just what I said. And so I did find out that he, he wasn't kidding. They really, they were going to kill him. Uh, they were the, uh, they were connected to the Mexican cartel out of Laredo, Texas. Uh, and they were really bad people. And that was the truth. And I was like, holy shit. Who, I'm, I didn't think I was going to leave that vehicle that day. Honestly, I thought I was going to, that was going to be like the end of me right there. Uh, but I, I said to him, I said, here's the deal. Like I'll, I had some, some money still left and I said, I'll pay you what Greg owes you. You no longer deal with Greg. He is, you don't call him. You don't sell him drugs. You don't give him anything. You'll deal with me from now on and we'll call this square. And the guy's like done. And I paid him his $15,000. Uh, and I took Greg's phone and I was now the, the new, uh, connect for whatever, 290, I'll never forget. I looked at like the number of contacts in the phone. He had 290 contacts on his phone, and all of them were cocaine customers, right? So overnight, I became a drug dealer. But and here's how 
crazy we think, Charles, is like this to me was a solution to so many problems. <laughs> I mean, this, and I, and I laugh because I, a normal person would never think this way, but this is my solution to my money problem. This is the solution to my drug problem. This is how I pay my mortgage. This is how I put food on my table. Like it was the solution to all of my problems. Right. Right. Randy, crazy? It is crazy. crazy. It, no, it is bat it is batshit crazy <laughs> that you decided it was a good idea to talk to people that were gonna kill the guy that you were buying drugs from. That is either brave or crazy or both. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because I would have been like, bro, that sucks. Um <laughs> I guess I should say goodbye to you now. You've been cool. And I'm going to probably find somewhere else to buy my drugs from now. So yeah, no, this I is great. I, again, I, again I was looking at it from a solutions-based approach, not like how stupid I was being right. in my life, right? <laughs> like how literally dumb. Oh, right, right. Self-preservation didn't come into the mix no, right there. That was self-preservation as far as I was concerned. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, your brain, my brain, totally. my lizard brain, the fight or flight. Totally. Brain, I mean, that's was survival. Totally. Oh, me, absolutely. Right? It, it, you needed to protect your source and you yeah. had a really confident understanding of your negotiation skills. Superman. 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 Cocaine is makes me Superman. <laughs> so now you're hooked up to the Mexican cartel right. dealing drugs to 300 folks <laughs> in and around the twin cities yeah, correct what happens next yeah randy so I, so, i'm so actually was, i'm a little afraid that went on for about i would say not quite a year where i was just selling drugs right but also in that time my my the amount i used went up considerably very quickly i was now up to using about uh between 10 and 14 grams of cocaine per day. Wow. So, yeah, like literally. I mean, it was. And your tolerance is going way up. And I mean, I, that didn't, and I don't even know, I think about it now, like how did my heart not stop from doing that much cocaine, right? But what, again, I. And how do you still have a nose? And right, Well, and I've had two deviated septums and, <laughs> and a surgery on it and everything else. And I still have a partially deviated septum from that. And, Plus, also, then I smoked a lot of crack, and I have high blood pressure now from screwing up my my cardiovascular system and all that, or everything else. But so I have I have some lifelong consequences from that from that drug use too. And then finally, one day, a guy said to me, Juan, not real name, I don't think still, but Juan says, uh, "We're leaving town. Uh, we the heat is on. Like they're having one of their informants said they're they're going to get busted, and so we got to go. So we're taking off. So they pack up their." everybody and they head back to texas i freaked out i panicked i needed drugs i didn't care about money i had plenty of money like no, money was not an issue i needed drugs like when you're doing 10 to 14 grams of coke a day uh, you need a lot of drugs it's not only that's just that's a, that's lot a of drugs, major right? habit to support <laughs> right. right and so i started making phone calls and and finally i found a guy that said a friend of a friend of a friend that uh he can hook you up with half keys half keys and keys if you need them I'm like sweet it was, it was a quite, quite a bit more money than I had been paying, but I didn't really give a shit because I needed drugs, right? Well, this guy owned a trucking company. Uh, he owned about a half a dozen uh, flat uh, box trucks. 
And he had routes that went to uh, California and routes that went to Texas to pick up legitimate you know, stuff. But the floorboards were all fake underneath. There was a level, a, a layer of flake floorboards. So underneath false the floor. floor. Yeah, he would bring back 10 to 100 keys of cocaine in each truck, right? And, well, apparently the feds have been following him for quite some time. And so the, in the, when one, in one day they raided six locations. My condo was one of the six locations. Mm. Uh, and I was, I went, I, I got, I got taken down the same day that guy got taken down and as part of his drug ring or whatever they called it. But so that's, yeah. So that's when I got arrested and started my journey in the, into the criminal justice system. And, you know, I, ended up, I finally ended up, you know, going to, I, I went to jail a lot of times there. I got released and put back, but finally got to go to treatment and, where I did get good counseling and, and meet my family therapist. And it, I, it did, I wasn't the easiest patient. I mean, it took me about 10 months to complete a 60 day program. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I, uh, I was supposed to be in a 60 day outpatient program and it, it didn't work out. Real, but well it takes what it takes. Right? Yeah, right. No, exactly. And so, but anyways, eventually after all that, I had to go face the music for my crimes for what I've been arrested for. And, and I was sentenced uh, by, so I got charged federally and I was sentenced by Judge Rosenbaum at that time in 2005, four and five. He was the senior sitting judge for the federal system in Minnesota, 15th floor of the federal building in downtown Minneapolis. The top floor was his courtroom, the nicest, biggest courtroom. Anyways, uh, and I remember that day walking in and and uh, he says to me, you know, Mr. Anderson, I, you, you know, you've done great. And, you know, you're doing good in this and blah, blah, all this stuff. I got your letters from the community members. And other than the little slip you had in treatment, because I did bring drugs to the treatment center once and got in trouble. But <laughs> and how long had you been in recovery at this point when you're in this in this courtroom? Oh, so January. So this was uh, not very long. Five months. Let's see. Jan- oh, not even February, March, April, May, June. July, five months, five months. But you've got five months of recovery. That's something that you're bringing to this judge. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I had been actually helping feed the homeless at Marion Sherry Caring Hands. I had been, I started up my working again. Like I, uh, I was working for a friend's company that was did tanning equipment that we were repair tanning beds and things like that. But I was back to, like, I thought I was going to get my life back, but my, it's funny. My lawyer kept telling me I had a really a bad attorney, but whatever. I paid him a lot of money for nothing. Uh, he just kept telling me, you're going to go to prison for a long time. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm like, I'm, I'm not, I don't have any criminal record. Like this is my first time getting arrested. Like they're, they don't, they're any, and you know what? He kept telling me, and I kept, I don't was as just in denial. Or I just didn't believe him. But anyways, I, well, I remember that day and the judge says, since you've done so well and you're doing this and all this and blah, blah, I'm going to sentence you to the lowest level, the lowest amount on your level. And I knew I already was, I, I had the staircase, like those of us in the system know we call the staircase like criminal justice points and felony points like they have to line up. Well, I had zero felony points, but I was on a level 32 because the amount of drugs I got caught with. And that that range was 87 to 108 months was the range of time I could get sentenced to. And so the judge says, I'm going to sentence you to the lowest amount of time on your level, uh, that which is 87 months. And I just freaked out. I, wow. I, started, I started bawling. I was like, I, I said, I'm pretty good at math. I'm like, some more than seven years. I'm going to go to prison for seven years because, because I, I mean, I got, I sold drugs. Yes. But I had, I had a disease and I'm doing better. And you guys are still going to, I'm thinking all, I'm just like in yeah. shock and uh, probably one of the worst days of my life. I mean, sure. no doubt about it, but 
And then, so I, even then that this, so here I'm crying and the judge asked me how many, you know, how many, how much time do you need to get your affairs order before you have to surrender to prison? And I'm kind of a smart aleck. Even at that point, I said, I don't know, is a year too long? <laughs> <laughs> the judge he kind of chuckled himself even and said, no, Mr. Anderson, I'm not going to give you a year. But so here's what I'll do. I'll give you six weeks to get all your affairs in order and you'll report to the prison that they tell you to. You'll get a letter in the mail in a week or so telling you where to go. So August 17th, uh, you will report to the prison where they tell you to go. And that was, uh, yeah, wow. I was like, are you freaking kidding? Wow. Yeah. And uh, that was the early July. So it was like six weeks away. Uh, yeah, it was right after the 4th of July. It wasn't there right before the 4th. I don't remember now. But anyway, so August 17th, 2005, my two best friends, Heidi and my friend Corey, drove me to Wasika. Minnesota, and I self-surrendered to the federal prison down there, which is now a woman's prison, but it was a men's prison back then. And uh, I'll never forget. Oh, sorry. Just wowzer. I'll never forget that day. I mean, you walk into that lobby, <laughs> like these sliding glass doors open, and it's actually like there's a little building that with a receptionist and flowers, and it's like, oh, this isn't like a doctor's office, like inviting, right? Uh that door's fine, but then the next door I had to go through is the like the electronic secure door. So you just uh, opens, you walk in, uh, closes behind you, and then you're you're. I was in this little like steel hallway with nothing, and I just waited there. And that was, but honestly, I thought that was like that was the end of my life, really. For me, I thought. Uh, and then of course the door, the front door opens, and a guard comes in, and they. They put you into your all your sh- the the shackle you up, and then uh, and then bring you into the prison and really horrible. Like I mean, I don't even know how to describe that how horrible that is. And uh, but I started doing my time like right now. I I'm not knowing really anything about prison or like how long will I really be there? Or you hear I mean everyone's an expert on. People that you know, there's a lot of experts that don't know <laughs> that don't know shit. <laughs> but you get all these different reports, like if you're just like, what do I believe, right? I mean, and anyways, I'm not gonna say I wish anyone to go to prison, but all in all, like honestly, it wasn't the I, th- I could think of a lot worse places to be in my life, like well, dead for one of them, but but uh, you know, I think one of the things about people in recovery or people with drug addiction problems or substance use problems is we're we're very resilient people. Uh, we learn to survive no matter where we're at, like no matter the environment, no matter what the circumstances like, that's what we do best is survive. <laughs> and, and so that's, you know, those skills came in really handy being incarcerated. Like I learned how to survive and I was not a role model inmate. Trust me. I broke rules that I shouldn't have been doing. I mean, I, I ran an inmate store for a while because I needed, I had to make money like, right. I ran an inmate store. I, I even was involved in the tobacco smuggling trade. This tobacco <laughs> was illegal in prison when I went. Like you couldn't even smoke anymore. And but we would smuggle tobacco in, and I was part of a yard crew, and so I was helped smuggling tobacco. Uh, I I the most lucrative thing I was fine. I started running the poker table, and I'm telling you, gambling is probably the most lucrative business in prison. Uh, I was making five six hundred bucks a month running the poker table. Uh, I was hot. I was rich, prison rich. Totally tell you. <laughs> it's all relative. <laughs> right. How and, long uh, did you end up spending <laughs> in prison? 
or five, uh, just total incarceration time of uh, uh, one week, about one week short of five years. So for about about 60 months, uh, it was 38 months in Wasika, 10 months in Duluth, and the other two months were between the various county jails that they had to be housed in, but in between arrest and rearrest and pretrial and all that other fun stuff. But yeah. And was recovery a part of your prison life? So for me, I had gone in there sober and in recovery. And I mean, I connected with other guys that were in recovery and I actually got a little time off my sentence because I took the, they had the residential drug abuse treatment program in, in federal prison called RDAP where you could take, and if you qualified, you'd get time off your sentence. I got, I got time now. I said, I took that program. So I got time knocked off my sentence for it. Uh, but I, I mean, I, I hung around people. There was still a lot of drugs in prison and I, I didn't associate. What? Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, imagine that. Yeah, lots of drugs. Like it just they cost ten times more. Than exactly. on the <laughs> like they're so expensive in prison. The closed market there. Yeah, right. Oh my God, they have. Yeah, and yeah, you don't want to get involved in that. I stayed away from that crowd. Like that. That's not who I. I hung around. I mean, I hung around the guys that like to play poker and we smoke cigarettes, and that was about as illegal as we did. <laughs> uh, which would still get you in a lot of trouble. Surprisingly enough, you would think, who cares about smoking a little cigarette, a little gambling? But boy, the prisons take that shit very seriously. Uh, lots of threats of being shipped off to another prison, and I got thrown in the hole a couple times. And <laughs> was it but, difficult to re-enter society after that, your time yeah. spent in? prison yeah so it was i remember i'll never forget this day this there's certain so many there's certain days and it's funny so i remember i said the first place i went to eat after prison was godfather's pizza in golden valley so my sister picks me up from duluth prison camp uh my sister and my niece sorry my sister who passed away last year picked me up from prison anyways and I, she goes where do you want to go and she brought me clothes like I, for the first time in five years, almost five years, I wore my own clothes, like clean underwear, clean socks, you know, not somebody else's like, oh my God, I can't even tell you like that feeling to me is amazing. And even though my sister bought me some clothes, I'd never picked for myself. It was okay. <laughs> and like, I just, I, I'll wear them because it's not, it's not prison clothes, but she brought me to Godfather's pizza and oh my God, did I, I had a little, I had a freaked out for a minute. Like, so we got in there and it was, there was not a lot of people, but quite a few people in there, I remember. And I had to go like, I, the table and the place I picked was the farthest back of the restaurant with my back in a corner. So there was no one behind me. So I could see everything going on in front of me. Uh, and that's how, and I, I, I mean, actually I'm getting, I have goosebumps right now because I remember how, like, am I, am I even allowed to be here? Like, or, or who's watching me? I don't know. Just so much and i don't suffer from mental illness or anxiety but if i i think at that moment i had like a panic attack or an anxiety attack i think i did uh just because of how like this it freaked me out like i just this is weird and then people like like when i went to prison there were no cell phones <laughs> when i got out from prison there were some people were carrying around like these things in their hand right and i was like what the what are, what is everyone what are people carrying around and like holy shit and I heard of it when we were in prison. We heard about those things, and everyone saw one get smuggled into prison. But, but uh, yeah, it was weird. It was uh, the best pizza ever. So Godfather's Taco Pizza is still my all-time favorite. Like, <laughs> so they, there's one left in Minnesota in Brooklyn Park, at least the one that I know. I didn't, so I didn't know that. And we had a Godfather's growing up in Apple Valley, and we oh. went there all the time for the lunch buffet. And we loved it. 
Yeah, no, but I, I'm a top, I mean, I like, like, I like their pizza, but the Godfather's actually super taco pizza is my all time favorite pizza. <laughs> I just had one last weekend. I still have the Brooklyn park one. I know the owner there and I still order pizza like at least once a month from there, but, uh, and your time yeah. spent incarcerated. Yeah. Your time spent incarcerated is a really important part of your advocacy work now. Is it not? So Let's yeah. talk about that. Yeah. Let's talk about Randy's life post incarceration yeah. in recovery. Talk about your advocacy work. What is advocacy? Yeah. And what does it look like? So, I mean, advocacy looks a lot like a lot of things. Uh, one of the things, so when I was incarcerated, I noticed that people, a lot of people that didn't look like me, and when I say didn't look like me, weren't white. So they were BIPOC or Native American or, and they had black or brown, black or brown, right? And they had very similar crimes to me. However, they were sentenced to a lot more time than me. And I never, I didn't really understand it while I was incarcerated. Well, I got out of, when I got out of incarceration and I had a job for a while and then I got fired because the owner and I didn't get along. I decided to go to college to become an addiction counselor. And I got involved with the student life at Minneapolis College. At that time, it was called Minneapolis Community Technical College. We called it MCTC. And I got involved with student life. And oh, holy shit. Like that student life, being involved with student life opened up my my eyes to like this whole world. Like there was a student senate and there was like these, these clubs, like there were, you know, student life clubs, but they're, they're all about somewhere, you know, very heavy on advocacy stuff where like they would work on, help work on legislative issues or like that's how I met the Second Chance Coalition. That's how I found out about the Steve Rumble Hope Network and overdose prevention, like all that all that happened while I was at college. And, and then I started to realize, like, especially with the second chance question, like there's these huge racial disparities in our systems, not just the, I mean, the justice system, yes, but all of our systems, like black and brown people aren't treated the same. And I, you know, I shouldn't say, like, I think I was pretty blind to it before that, like before I got arrested or before I went to prison, like I just didn't, I didn't see it. I mean, and now I look at it and say, you know, it's because my white privilege and, and I grew up in a, in a community that, you know, we didn't see a lot of people of color and this and that. So I, I, I'm not making an excuse. I just know why now I probably maybe was shielded or, or, or uh, didn't see a lot of that. I mean, even growing up in Golden Valley, like we're bordered on North Minneapolis, but I remember growing up as a kid, my dad would say to us, don't cross Theodore Worth Park. Like, and I'm like, why not? Like, well, that's where the bad people live, right? No, that's not. That's where the black people live, right? Uh, that's where know. the area that no investment goes into. That's Correct. the underinvestment zone. Correct. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, well, my dad being very racist, you know, now, I mean, and I can say that. Like, I don't, I, you know, was very racist at one time in my life. I've worked to be anti-racist and, you know, still working on that all the time, of course. But I did. I now I know why my father would say that because there's not there's black people there, right? They're absolutely. They're not, you know, I mean, my we a, moved you know. out of northeast Minneapolis when I was six because they were talking about mixing schools yep. and busing different kids to different schools, and my parents didn't want any part of that, so yeah. they moved to right. Apple Valley. So that we could have the best schools, and there were not very many black, black and brown people growing up, and I too was very blind to yeah. 
the systematic inequities that exist across the board across the board absolutely and so anyways i just and then i realized like i i I come from a sales background imagine that like real sales besides my pharmaceutical sales i also did real sales before (laughs) (laughs) you and i both are are so uh, yes (laughs) so those very transferable skills but also made me like I'm not afraid to, t- to talk to people and even to elect elected officials, but I started to get involved with like, especially a second chance coalition and working at the Capitol. And I realized like me being white and, and coming from a middle-class community and, and educated and you know, I could articulate what I wanted to say very well, people listened to me. So I could start to use that privilege uh, to do, to help, like to change our systems, right? To make a difference. To make a difference, right? And not, and, and I, it, it's not going to change what happened to me, but for, you know, the people coming behind me, I'm hoping I can make a, a new, a, do, a new path for them, a better path for them, right? Uh, people did it for me. So I feel almost obligated to do it for others now, but I, this shirt, so I'm wearing this shirt today because so the first time I ever testified in front of our state legislation was we, we in January, excuse me, December 23rd, 2015, it was the first of the of many drug sentencing reform hearings to change our drug sentencing guidelines. And I was, you know, I was sent, even though I was sentenced federally, our state sentencing guidelines were very similar to our federal guidelines at the time. And people were being harshly sentenced like I was. So Mark Hasse, who's a great friend of mine who uh, now works for the state of Minnesota as the ombudsman office, whatever, the director of the ombudsman office. And he was also ran for Hennepin County, Hennepin County attorney a few years ago. Anyways, he convinced me to testify. So I showed up in this shirt one day and I testified. Which is just so everybody knows, it's a felon shirt. Yes. And Randy, they can't see it. They can't. I forgot. We're on a podcast. Duh. Where's felon apparel <laughs> early and often? And I love the heck out of it because it actively smashes stigma yeah. and allows people to understand that felons are human beings and redeemable and of worth. Yeah. Right. One hundred percent. And that, that's and just on a side note, like I, when I wear this shirt and I even go to one time, I went to the grocery store. So I live in Golden Valley. There's a Lunds and Byerly's very white neighborhood. Right. Uh, and the cashier says to me one time, are you wearing a felon shirt? I said, I am. And she goes, why? And I'm like, why do you ask? And she's like, well, you're not a felon. Right. I'm like, so why do you think I'm not a felon? And then all of a sudden, then she paused, and I can tell like the light bulb starting to go off for her. And she's like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> like, and I said, "So you assumed because I'm white, and I or I don't, I'm not all tatted up or whatever, like that, then I can't be a felon, right?" She goes, "Honestly, yes." And I said, "Yeah, and that's okay. Like you're you're not like a lot of people think that way, right?" And I'm going to tell you. So I have three felonies. I've been to prison, uh, but and I so when when you I guess that picture in your mind. You need, that's what you, that's, you don't, what you think a felon looks like. You don't know. I mean, I love what Emily Baxter says from we, we are all criminals. One in four Americans have a criminal record. Four in four have a criminal history. <laughs> <laughs> the, only Absolutely correct. the only difference is I got caught. <laughs> so, but anyways, this shirt, this shirt has started a lot of conversations, but I loved it when I testified. Uh, and because of that, and I know we're, I don't want to, I don't know how, I don't want to take too much more time on this, but because of that testimony, and a lot of people testified, though, we did change our sentencing guidelines that next next year, and about 700 less people go to prison in Minnesota every year because they have addiction problems. They get offered help first. 
they get they get a, they get many chances before they become incarcerated, which I think we still we even need to do better than that. But I I just for me to be part of something like that, I thought, and this was my that was my first taste of advocacy and like testifying at a you know legislation legislative committee and like we we change laws for are you kidding me? And that like, changes lives, right? Yeah, so that's what um, advocacy is. Yeah. It's about using your voice and using your story and using your experience to make meaningful changes in policy and legislation that has a real impact on people's lives. Yeah. And it's and, and it's even more I, I mean, even using my white privilege, I because because how I look, I get invited to a lot more places than other people do. Absolutely. And then once I get there though, then I can like Come on, friends, let's go. I'm in the door now. You know, it reminds me of hitchhiking. A a woman that's single and alone is much more likely to get someone to stop than if she's with some other dude. So the dude hides in the bushes. Yep. And she hitchhikes and then brings over her friend. (laughs) Same thing. Let's open the door. Let me open the door for you. Right. Because so, they're going to keep it closed for you, but because I am who I am, I have the ability to open this door. Let me bring you with me. Yep, one hundred percent. That's what adds me. That's a big part of advocacy. But there are so many ways to advocate. I mean, I always tell people, like, if you want to get like get involved. I mean, like right now, my wife is running for city council here in Golden Valley, uh, and Tuesday's the election, and it's been like a lot of work. But like. I know my city council members. I know my mayor. I know my state legislators. I know my I know a couple few of my federal legislators. But I I worked hard over the last seven or eight years to develop relationships with them. And it's like when you you know like if one day if I'm having an issue, I can text my state rep and say, Hey, Mike, like this is happening. What should I do? But I and that's and I'm not special. Like anyone can do that. But you have to build those relationships, and you have to find out who they are and who represents me. I'm telling you what, if we don't, as a recovery community, and we're getting better, but if we don't get more involved with advocacy and policy and and state and federal legislation and change those laws, we're going to be left out. Like, And it's going to be done. Some of this stuff's going to change without us if we let it happen. And so, you know, we, we hear phrases like nothing about us without us. I love the one either you have a seat at the table or you're on the menu. Like that's absolutely agree with that. Yeah. So people are going to make laws or change laws with or without us. I would much rather have it done with us (laughs) Uh, because that's how we're going to get the outcomes we are looking for. Right. So we can continue (laughs) to humanize substance use disorder and we can continue to bring the spectrum of care across the life cycle of recovery. There's a long way to go when it comes to the policy and legislative changes that need to occur. Right. Long long ways. I mean, we're, we're still not. So when, when did we pass parity in this country in the nineties that you, that insurance provider health parity. Yeah, they have to treat substance use disorder like any other me- medical condition. Do you think that's still? Do you think that's occurring? <laughs> that's in practice. It, yeah, no. right. It's not right. Uh, 
insurance companies, you know, I love it when I was a counselor and I would get an authorization for someone to attend treatment and I would get, oh, here's, here's seven days. I'm like, what do you want me to do with that? Like, like that's not, this person needs like 90 days at, at least. And you are giving me an authorization for seven days of treatment. Like, so we're not, we're still not being treated like other medical conditions, right? Because we're, because of the stigma. I mean, because, because we're addicts, because we're junkies, because we're people that make poor choices is what the, what the general public still believes, right? That, that, so I, I don't, I think, we just need to break that stigma. And then like we're me wearing this shirt is just starting those conversations. So people see that we're human, that we're people, we recover and we go on to do great things when we recover. Absolutely. Like, That's why I'm such a yeah. fan of recovering out loud. Yeah, yeah. So that people get a better understanding of what a person in long-term recovery looks like a, that it's possible. Yeah. B, that we weren't bad people. We made some bad decisions while in active use. And when we recover out loud, we do two things. We smash that stigma and we show other people it's possible. Right. Nope. Yep. That they can recover too. Right. I would say we're not we're not bad people. We're sick people trying to get well. I mean, Absolutely, that's, that's, that's what it is. It's, and I was spiritually sick. I was an emotionally sick. I was physically sick. I was sick in every sense of the word. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then I got onto a path of wellness, right. spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Yeah. And then I was able to find my purpose, and my purpose evolves. But I get to share other people's recovery stories and help other people recover out loud, which is a tremendous gift and honor that I take very seriously and that I feel privileged to be able to do. Yeah, no, it's fun. I love you and Jason, are, especially this Way Out podcast has been a great. You guys have done an amazing job with it. I mean, it's awesome. I just want to say... If people want to get involved, I want the one thing I want to make sure that they know about is called the Recovery Advocacy Project. And you can Google it. It's it's that easy. It's the Recovery Advocacy Project. And there are there are chapters and, and state leads. I think we're up to 41 states now, so we're not all the way to 50 yet, but pretty damn close because I'm sure your show touches people from all over the place. And, and I want to make sure that they know there's something that they can get involved with for this cause that's not just in Minnesota, like it's everywhere. And so that's, if nothing else today, I encourage your listeners to Google the Recovery Advocacy Project and sign up for your state. Or if there isn't one in your state, you become the guy in your state or the gal in your state. (laughs) We're gonna make that really easy for you all. If you're listening right now, check the show notes. A handy link will be in there for the Recovery Advocacy Project, if there's one in your state, get involved. If there's not, start one. Right, 100%. I love that. I love the name of it. I'm going to be looking into that after we're done here, Randy. But not before 
We do yeah. rapid fire questions. Oh. Are you ready, my friend? I, I'm ready. This is like the Jeopardy or something, or am I like the final round of Jeopardy or something? Let's go. What does your <laughs> daily recovery routine consist of? Yeah. So for me, it's uh, honestly, I get up and have my coffee and let my dog out and I get on social media really. And I look for, so I, this, and maybe this is weird. I don't care. First thing I do is every, so I'm one of those people that has like 4,997 friends on Facebook. Right. But every day I, I look up the birthdays of all the people in my friends list and I wish everyone a happy birthday every day. Like that's a ritual of mine. Then I look for, like I scroll through, I look for people that are having recovery anniversaries or sobriety anniversaries. And I make sure I wish as many of those I can find, but like congrats on whatever, and just like to acknowledge their success. Right. Uh, and then I, you know, I get to get to, I get to do my work, which is really working and helping integrate and build a peer, peer recovery workforce. Like, right. That's, and to me, that's the cool in five years, Charles, the peer workers will be the biggest workforce in the behavioral health field. I mark my words. I believe that. I do. And I was fortunate enough to be a part of one of your peer recovery trainings. And it was an incredible experience. It was an eye-opening experience. It was a expansion experience in a number of different ways, intellectually spiritually and from a recovery standpoint and i'm proud to be able to say that i've earned my recovery coach professional credential and it's been an amazing RCP. experience rcp baby Way yeah <laughs> what book or piece of recovery literature had the biggest impact on your recovery oh god it's a, so there's it's so weird. All of my friends have written books now. Like I know. I'm, I'm writing. A, I'm just like, you know, I'm going to write a fucking book now because like, I'm jealous. All my friends have written a book. Now I have to write a book. It's going to be a few years away, but I'm writing a book. My, but here's the weird one. It's the one that, that touched me the most that isn't written by one of my friends. It's called Night of the Gun by David Carr. So David Carr was a, a originally a Star Tribune reporter. He wrote for the New York Times for a long time. About three years ago, he passed away. At a, not a very old age from a heart attack, but David Carr, I think it's C-A-R-R, Knight of the Gun. So he talks about his early days and his using days in Minneapolis and how, like his recovery journey. And I read, and I, it's the only book I read from front to back when I was incarcerated. And oh my God, it was just, he had went to the same treatment program I went to. He went, like, it was so inspiring to me to read when I was incarcerated. And that was an early, so I spent my first five years recovery incarcerated, right? And to, and to read that book and like this guy became went on to become like a New York Times writer and bestseller. Right. And I thought it was so. But he came from the same place I came from. So that book to me, like reading that book, like inspired me and really kept me on a path, I think, while I was even well, even while I was incarcerated. Like, yeah, Night of the Gun by David Carr. Amazing book. That is why recovering out loud is so important, because when we truly identify with someone that felt like we felt did what we did and used like we used and recovered yeah. and started to have a meaningful and enduring recovery and life 
it's real hope. Yeah. Oh, you and if you don't know who David Carr is, just check him out. It's he's he's amazing. His story and reading the book, he, talk, he talks about his two twin daughters. How sometimes he leave him in the car running while he's in the crack house smoking crack, and I mean, just like, oh my god, dude! And like, it's just he's a he's. I wish I had had the chance to meet him before he passed away. Honestly, but yeah. What's next? What is the best piece of advice you've received thus far in your recovery journey? Don't take no for an answer. <laughs> Uh, don't, <laughs> don't don't quit don't give up uh you know uh if it doesn't work one way try it another way uh but i think yeah don't take no for an answer that's probably more but i know it's i think that's you know that's I, I for me that's what comes to my marine it's just don't take no for an answer don't give up there's always hope like right like even when i mean this you know charles this last 11 months has been pretty brutal on my family i mean i lost my sister in November, my mom in January. And six weeks ago, yesterday, my stepfather died of a fentanyl overdose. Yeah. And so I've lost three really close family members. In, in, I mean, like, so I don't know if some people would be able to even cope with what's happened. I'm not bragging, but, but because of my recovery and because of my recovery community and like, and I think it's like, it hasn't, it's, it's hurt me. Don't get me wrong. I grieve and I go through these huge waves, but it's, it's made me double down on my efforts. Like, and I, like people say, I don't know how you can double down, Randy. Like, I don't know, like you can't, you can't be doing anymore, but know what there is, I can be, <laughs> and I'm going to find a way to do it because I'm sick of people dying. So don't give, don't say, don't take no for an answer. That's it. <laughs> I love it. And it is a reminder that this thing is deadly. Yeah. Life or death. There's no question about it. Life or death. What is the greatest challenge you've had in recovery thus far? Yeah, lo losing my sister. I, uh, when she suffered her brain injury in 2019, uh, the doctors had determined that she was no longer capable of making her own decisions. And, uh, and I had to become her legal guardian. I had to become the legal guardian of my 45 year old sister. Right. And I, you know, I fought, I fought so hard for her and 16 years of recovery. And, and I'm a licensed alcohol and drug counselor. I'm a recovery coach professional and five years of prison. And, and I still, and I know I'm not supposed to say it this way. And the counselor in me tells me not to say it this way, but I'm going to say it this way anyways is I couldn't save my sister's own life, right? I mean, I can help a perfect stranger um, get them on a path to wellness, right, and, and recover. And I couldn't do that for my own sister. It tears, it tears me up. I mean, it it rips me apart on the inside a lot of days. I bet. And uh, I think that's been the biggest struggle, like, is how do I, I, I obviously I'm not, over it like i mean well i don't know i'll probably never be over it right because it's my sister but but i'm still in a really not i'm not in a great place with it like i still think about why why is it that i couldn't save my own sister right mm -hmm. so hoofda that's been the struggle that's been the hardest for my since my i mean no without question been my hardest challenge in my recovery journey loss is so hard in general and if you're like me, 
losing somebody that's so close to you brings about feelings of anger and sadness and grief and those are the times when I know that I have to be extra vigilant around my recovery because it's it's a big trigger for me and I know it's a big trigger for other people and sometimes there's no uh, there's nothing we can do. Like, you know, there's just nothing we can do. And that's the being powerless over those kinds of situations are so difficult for us. Yeah. It's just a very difficult thing. But I see you reach out to your brothers and sisters in and out of the recovery community and they rally around you. Oh, unbelievable. The support I've received from in this last, I mean, really for a long time, but this the last 11 months. And what a gift. They, I mean, from all across this country and some not in this country, right? I have friends in the UK and, and uh, in Canada now and from in my, and they, I mean, I, I just go back, even the, even yes, even the post I put up yesterday for yesterday, just about, I was, I've, I've been invited to go speak inside of a prison and it'll be the first time that I'm going back inside of a prison since being released. So I'm not going to lie. Like it's, I'm a little like anxious about it. Like it's, I mean, it just, you know, I look, I look at the Facebook post, there's like 400 people have had some reaction to it. Hundreds of comments. It's like all supportive. Like, um, I mean, that that's what I've gotten for it since this journey, this last 11 months with losing multiple family members. It's been like that a lot, like constant the text messages, the Facebook messages, the comments are on social media. I, I have the best. I'm so blessed. Like I am so blessed to have that 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 huge of a uh, network and the recovery community from everywhere, like from all, you know, from families that have lost similar situations. I mean, yeah, Charles, that's, I mean, that's what's got me through. Absolutely. I mean, that's really what's got me through. And it's a, and it's a direct result of recovery. Yeah. And it reminds me too, Randy, that, you know, I, I can't control the outcome of my efforts. Like my higher power wants me to be of maximum service to the God of my understanding and the people around me on a daily basis, but I don't get to decide who I help and how that and how, and how it helps them. I don't get to decide that. I always say there's a, the, there's a map or a blueprint that's already written. I just don't get to look at it. <laughs> exactly. Right. And that's, exactly. that's, I mean, I'm not the most religious guy, but I'm very spiritual. And I, I say that like, there's this, there is this map or blueprint somewhere already written they just, I just don't get to peek at it. <laughs> and if I continue to be of maximum service to the God of my understanding of the people around me in and out of recovery on a daily basis, then I know I'm doing that next right thing. Even yeah. if at times it feels ridiculously unfair right. and ridiculously unjust what is the greatest success you've had in recovery (sighs) the greatest success you know what it's got to be without question my current wife 
Uh, we were married now, and this April was eight years. Uh, she's a normie, like <laughs> so I, she's an so, earthling. Yeah, she's a, she's, she can have a glass of wine or smoke a cigarette on New Year's or whatever, and like, and it's okay. And like, then no, not, and then and not, not for a long no consequence, time. Right, and just say no, I'm done. Right, pisses me the f off. I, I have no, I, I cannot wrap my head around it. No. Me either. And it, it's like, God, that's I want to do, be able to do that one day. Which it's I'm like my like, older oh. brother growing up used to have a pack of cigarettes in his truck for like a month. <laughs> oh, my God. What? Why? Anyway. Right. Why? But, but my I think my greatest gift is my is my wife. Uh, he finally God, you know, God, of my understanding, finally put someone in my in my life that is can walk this journey with me. And and uh and not in, you know, it doesn't have to be in recovery, just like, and just shows up for me. And, and, you know, we don't, like, we don't fight. Like we have occasional disagreements or arguments, but we talk, like we talk things through. I, it's a really healthy relationship. And I think that's my greatest gift to my recovery so far is that relationship. The relationships that we're able to establish when we enter meaningful and enduring recovery and walk a path of wellness are so rewarding. And it really is the stuff that life is made of. This next one's a doozy, and then we end with a fun one. Okay. What is something you haven't forgiven yourself or someone else for? Well, the one I thought of, I can't say on the air. Uh, (laughs) Just wouldn't wouldn't be appropriate. You know, I mean, when I in my when I in my active addiction, my first marriage, uh, although I thought it was a good good father and a good husband, I really wasn't. I think there was many times when I would have the kids in the car when I when I would go pick up drugs, uh, and then I get in the car and they'd be in the back seat, and I remember like even pulling out the package and doing a lot doing a bump of cocaine right with them in the car, you know. And uh, I just think back now, like the the jeopardy, I, I the the danger I put those children in. I don't know if I, I don't know if I can ever forgive myself for that. Uh, thank God nothing happened, but I don't think I don't think it's something I can forgive myself for either. Though I can relate with that. I used to drive around my kids and my third ex-wife's I've been divorced three times my third ex-wife's kids around hammered multiple times a week rationalizing that I wasn't quote unquote that drunk I was in no shape to be driving children around none zero and put their lives at risk routinely after Going to treatment a few days and having my big revelation, I decided it was a good idea to tell my ex-wife about all of the times that I did that to unburden myself, not because I was trying to be a good human. I thought I was, but I was really just trying to unburden myself. It's one of the primary reasons I think we're not married anymore, Randy, because... You're supposed to do, you know, I've worked through those 12 steps and that step's way, 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 way down the line, right? So I can intimately relate with that. There's one other, there's one other thing too that I just have to mention. There was a, 
uh, selling drugs. There was this kid named Mike, 19 years old, and he had bought cocaine for me one night. And I, I found out the next day Mike had died of a heart attack, 19 years old. Uh, I know it's not my fault. And they found out later that he did have an underlying heart condition. But I sold him the drugs that killed him. I don't know. That's another thing. I don't think I can ever. There's no way to forgive myself for that. I, honestly, if I, I wish one day, I wish I could talk to his family and tell him, tell him I'm sorry. Because they didn't deserve to lose their son at 19 years old. And I know, like, I know that people say, well, he would if it wasn't you, it was someone else, and he had a heart condition anyways, he probably would, it would probably, it doesn't matter. The night I sold him cocaine, he died. And the reality is we have to live with these things. And that's a part of it. And to pretend that it's all sunshine, unicorns, and rainbows, and that we don't have lasting regrets is just not reality. Right. Right. I always say I have this using debt to pay, and I thank God I've, I've acquired a lot of recovery capital to pay my using debt when it calls, right? Indeed. <laughs> now for the fun one. Yeah. What song, one song, symbolizes recovery to you, Randy? Now, you're kind of like a song, music, right? So, yeah. so music I mean, is, an, a, is a thing for you. So well, so I love I don't, my my favorite song. No matter what kind of mood I'm in, no matter where I'm at, no matter what's going on, if I hear the song and I got it, I'm gonna get the name wrong. So I gotta look. Uh, it's really uh, you can uh, make fun of me, whoever wants to. I don't care. So a song that always cheers me up and like always gets me happy is Justin Timberlake. Can't stop this feeling. <laughs> so, sorry, like I, that song. I know it's like. Yep, JT is the man, I'm telling you. No matter what happens, no matter where I'm at, if I hear that song, it, Im- Im- it immediately and instantly puts me in a good mood and I want to dance, I want to sing aloud, I want to scream, I want to yell. I think that's great. I'll be listening to JT as I put this episode together. So thank you very much. <laughs> Although I have a very fond memory of JT because my girlfriend took me to a JT concert and here's how well i know mr timberlake there was an opening act we're listening to the opening act i thought the opening act was justin timberlake it was not and so (laughs) and so the opening act gets done and i'm like that was really short and why did he only do this many songs and she looks she's like that wasn't jt oh okay (laughs) <laughs> um, uh, but I've had respect for JT. He's a tremendous performer. Well, and his his girlfriend, I don't know if, if they're still Jessica Beale is from Minnesota. One of our uh, own. And one of our own. And you know, I still think she has the nicest ass in Hollywood. I'm just gonna say that. So. <laughs> <laughs> you can indeed say that. Randy, thank you so much, brother, for taking time to share your experience, strength, and hope. And a lot about advocacy here on the way out podcast. It's been a tremendous time. It's been awesome. Thanks, Charles. Uh, again, I, I, I'll have to come back another time because we, we have plenty to talk about. So <laughs> we do. You have an open invitation, my friend. And I mean that sincerely. 
Wonderful. I appreciate that. Well, thank you. And thanks to your listeners for uh, for putting up with me for the last hour or so, hour and a half, however long we've been talking, too long. I, I took up way too much of your time, but thank you. And thank you, everybody out there in Way Out Podcast Land. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to the Way Out podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.